There we go. Uh, well, we'll we'll get started in uh, in the second part of Psalm 45. And uh, actually, I'm very grateful for Ryan coming in and sharing those things. And uh, Ryan's a great guy to work with. Uh, I enjoy working with him, uh, partly because we think a lot alike, unfortunately, or whatever that means. <laughs> but uh, but uh, he is a, he's a, he's a great guy to work with, and uh, and uh, and I'm glad to be teamed up with him in this project, and also to know that he'll be working with you guys, uh, and uh, and listening to you, and uh, et cetera, as you move forward. Uh, he does listen, and he does. He's very uh, very open to ideas, so uh, I don't think you have anything to fear about uh, about where things are going at this point. Uh, but we are in Psalm 45, and uh, last week uh, <clears throat> we looked at the first half of the psalm uh, down through verse 9, and beginning today, uh, and we only have about 20-25 minutes left, but beginning today uh, we'll pick up uh, with verse 10. Uh, but let's uh, briefly just kind of go back and think about uh, some of the things we talked about last week as we kind of introduced this psalm and, and our approach to the psalm and then some of the things you talked about. What are some of the things you remember from last week? Okay, okay. We talked about... Uh, the literary term for this is genre, G-E-N-R-E, genre, okay, which means simply a type or a style. And the scriptures, the Bible is made up of several different genres. You have the epistles, which are kind of didactic. They're very teaching. They're very straightforward, uh, etc. So you have the gospels, which is kind of a history, but a little bit different than straight history. Then you have history or narrative, like the book of Genesis or the book of First Kings or the book of Acts. You have apocalyptic literature, uh, prophecy, uh, the book of Revelation, the book of Isaiah, etc., etc. Uh, you have wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, etc., etc. And then you have, uh, as, as is our point of interest right now, we have the, uh, the poetry books, and we have, uh, we have poetry in various places in some of the other books. But, but we have the book of Psalms is, of course, essentially a book of poetry or a book of songs. Okay? And each one of these styles, each one of these types of literature calls for a little bit different approach in interpretation. And particularly when we're engaging with poetry, uh, we we uh, we have to be careful how we proceed. Uh, I was thinking, say for example, uh, a, a poet uh, he, he he tries to communicate things. He tries to communicate ideas and truths and reality, but he does it with like pictures and and things that that affect us kind of not only intellectually but emotionally. So, for example. Uh, uh, a, a poet might be looking at some. He might be describing some scenery, and he might refer to the this beautiful scene as calling to him. Well, of course, he doesn't mean by that that the trees or the mountains or whatever are literally calling, but he's describing kind of a feeling that he gets when he looks at this beautiful scene. Okay, so 
so a poet uses imagery and things like that to to communicate ideas. So when we're interpreting poetry, when we're interpreting the Psalms, we need to understand that the psalmist isn't always expressing things in a literal way, but he is expressing a literal truth. And there's a difference between those two things. Okay. So using the example that I just used to say a poet is looking at the mountains and he's saying the mountains call unto me. He doesn't mean literally the mountains are physically he's hearing some audible sound. Okay. But he is communicating a literal truth that there that in looking at the mountains, there's something there's something real that's going on inside of him. Okay. So when we encounter the Psalms, we are we're trying to understand what the psalmist is saying, and oftentimes he's using similes or metaphors or allegories or or, or or imagery or things like that that aren't necessarily technically literal in the wording themselves, but they are communicating a literal truth. Okay, and uh, so that's important to remember, and we'll particularly encounter that as we move forward here in this psalm. Okay, uh, what else did we talk about last week? What is the uh, what is the psalmist feeling as he begins this psalm? Anticipation. Pardon? Anticipation. Okay, anticipation. Joy. Joy. Okay. How do you how do you conclude that? Where do you get that? Okay, his heart's overflowing. Okay, he says, "My heart." Overflows with so as he's introducing his subject that he's going to uh, that he's going to uh, expound on here. Uh, as he introduces it, he lets us know that he is just this. The thought that he's that's filling his mind is just it's overflowing. It's it's just something that just is so awesome to him, so uh, so overwhelming to him. He can't contain it. He says, "My heart is overflowing with a good theme." And that theme is what? Okay, the wedding of the king. This is his subject, okay? And as he contemplates the wedding of the king, he's just overwhelmed with it. And he says there at the end of that first verse, he says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. He's so eager to write. It's like his tongue is a pen and he just... You know, he can't wait to write this down. It's like, as we said last week, it's like, a, you know, when you're sitting there at your desk or you're uh, walking through the house or something and some great thought hits you. I don't know if this happens to you, but once in a while it hits me and I get this great thought, you know, and I go, oh, I got to, you know, I got to write that down. And you, you got to have a pen right ready, you know, to grab from the desk or you run over to the kitchen counter and grab a grab a pen to write it down because you just got this great thought. I'm trying to train myself uh, as I'm... What are you laughing about? <laughs> the thought is God. I, yeah, that's exactly right. So I'm, so I'm working here at the church this week. I'm, I'm actually painting here at the church this week. And I'm also doing a lot of thinking about this upcoming class, okay? And these thoughts go... But I've got a paintbrush in my hand, you know? And so I'm trying to remember how to to, to you know, try and figure out how do I keep these thoughts? You know, I'm trying to train myself to use that that uh, that audio uh, 
uh, memo thing on my smartphone. You know, I got that on my smartphone, and if I could train myself, but like, like uh, uh, Ryan was pointing out, I am 66, so it's a little hard to teach an old dog new tricks. But I'm trying to train myself to grab that phone and punch that button and say that thought so I don't use it. The psalmist here is so filled with this thing, he's, he's just got to write it down, okay? And the subject is the king's wedding, okay? Now, as we said last week, who is this king he's talking about? In probably what really triggered this psalm in the first place. Who's he talking about? Well, eventually we get there, but before that. It's just some Hebrew king, right? We don't know who. It could have been Solomon. It could have been, you know, but, but he's contemplating the, the wedding of some Hebrew king. We assume that that's what precipitated the psalm in the first place, okay? But, but as we talked about last week, the, 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 the marriage of the Hebrew kings to their wives was was representative of something far greater than that, okay? It's like when we have weddings today and we understand in the Christian context that a wedding today represents something greater than just the wedding of that couple, okay? Well, for particularly for the marriage of uh, when you had a Jewish king and he was getting married, it it represented it was it particularly that marriage particularly that that particular kind of wedding, the wedding of a king to his queen, to the one who's going to be his queen, that that, uh, that particular wedding was especially representative of God's union to his people. And so the psalmist starts out and he has this probably some just some regular king-queen wedding coming up, okay? Like we would see in England, you know, when the, when the king or the prince gets married or whatever, and it's a big deal, okay? So that's what he originally starts at. But what we saw last week is his language, his language just almost immediately as the psalm starts, his language just escalates, okay? And so very soon he's talking in God terms, and he's talking about how he's, a, how he's more beautiful than anyone. And he calls him the mighty one. And then later in the psalm, he actually refers to him as God. So it's very clear that what's happened in the psalmist's mind is he started out here thinking about the king, this king that's going to get married, whoever the king was. We don't know. He starts out there, but very quickly his thoughts just shoot up. They just escalate to where he's, what he's actually thinking about is he's thinking about the union of God to his people. Okay. And in the context, it would be the thinking, of, of, uh, thinking about the, the union, the marriage of, of, of the wedding of Israel to God. Okay. That's how it would originally start. But as we move forward in redemptive history, it becomes very clear that this psalm is a messianic psalm. So that when we get to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews cites this psalm a couple times there in the book of Hebrews. He goes back and he quotes this psalm as he's talking about the glory and the wonder of Christ. So this psalm is what we say is a messianic psalm. It's a, it's a psalm that's speaking forward to the Messiah. Okay? And as we mentioned last week, the psalm is broken down into two parts. You have, you have an introduction there in verse 1. And then beginning in verse 2 and through verse 9, he's discussing the king himself. 
He's describing the king. He's urging the king forward and he's describing this glorious king. And again, by the time he opens up in verse 2 and really gets going, he's already, his thoughts have already escalated. So he's thinking messianically. He's thinking of God himself as the king. And he's contemplating the people of God being united to this king. But he begins, and what we looked at last week, was his description of the king. And he tells us that this king is beautiful and his lips are flowing with grace. And then he, and then he gets into that section where he talks about, about his majesty and his splendor and, his, and, and how valiant he is. He's this, uh, he, he starts out with his, is this picture of this beautiful person whose lips are full of grace. And then he moves into this idea of this warrior, this guy who goes out, whose right arm teaches him mighty things. In other words, he's out there and he's really going to work in this battle. Okay, And he's seeing terrible things happen in war. Okay, And, and as I mentioned this last week, and I didn't elaborate on this, what we have here is a picture of the perfect man. Because we, you know, we, we, we get really conflicted about masculinity nowadays. Okay? And... And and uh, sometimes we think of being a man as just being really handsome and all that sort of thing and whatever. And then some of us think that uh, that, that that the perfect version of a man is uh, is Duck Dynasty, you know. Well, it's it's really a blend of those two, right? It's a blend. It's a, it's a it's it, what we see in Christ and what we see in the King here in Psalm 45 is we see this perfect blend of kindness and beauty and grace and gentleness and tenderness and splendor and majesty and valiancy. Is that a word? Valiant? Whatever, you know. You see, the, you see the perfect blend of that in Christ. Christ is the perfect man. And He is the perfect blend of what a man ought to be. Okay? And we see that in His life, in Jesus' life. We see that tenderness with little children and and, and and that sort of thing. And his concern for the poor and the weak. And then we see him in the temple. You know, purging the temple, going through there with a whip. And this is the this is the picture we get of our king. He is the perfect man. Because he's God. Okay. And so he can have that perfection. All of us guys, we just kind of struggle and we kinda of lean towards one way or the other. But Christ is all of those things. And, and then he talks about the glory of his throne and how in his, in his court, he says, are these noble ladies who are king's daughters. And so he has among those ladies and uh, noble ladies who attend to him are those who have, come, have been given to his court from other kingdoms. Okay? So it's this, this idea of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Those, so those are some of the things that we talked about last week. That's that's the description of the king. And we talked about how in, in these uh, Hebrew weddings that you would have in the course of the celebration, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the time we have left today, but in the course of the celebration, you would have these, you would have these singers or you would have these choirs and they would be there and they would be singing, but they would, be, uh, they would uh, sing about the two parties who are getting married. So they would sing about the, 
the groom and they would praise the groom and they would, you know, I should have had that at my wedding or I should have had a choir over here on the side singing how great I was, you know. Well, that's what they did in Hebrew weddings, okay, is they had these choirs and they would sing about the greatness of the groom and particularly if it was the king and they would sing about the greatness of the king. But then you also had the choir there and they would also sing or, or, or if it wasn't a choir, it would be individuals or whatever, but they would sing also about the bride. And this psalm is really broken down into two parts. The first part of the psalm, verses 2 through 9, are the, are the singing about the king. And then beginning in verse 10 and down through verse 15, it's singing about the bride. And that's the part we want to look at today. And of course, uh, we'll run out of time, so we'll pick it up again next week. But, uh, but in verse 9, which is kind of the end of his section of the, talking about the king, he says, King's daughters among your noble ladies, at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Oprah. And so he's describing the court of the king and he's talking about how he has all these noble ladies and they actually come from other kingdoms. They've, they've been given to his court from other kingdoms. They are the daughters of other kingdoms who have come. But then... He focuses and he says, and at his right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Okay, and Ophir is a, a, a geographic location that was apparently had gold mines and stuff, and they're very, very famous gold. And uh, but but he says that she's standing there arrayed in gold from Ophir, and so the focus now shifts to his queen. Now, if we have a messianic psalm that is describing the wedding of the king, okay, then who does the bride represent? The bride represents the church in a messianic sense, okay. In in this context, as the psalmist is singing, he's probably thinking in terms of Israel because he's not. The idea of the church hasn't dawned on him yet. He doesn't know about the church. That won't come until centuries later. But now that we see the psalm in a messianic term we would understand that when he's describing the bride here, he's talking about us. He's talking about the church. Okay? And, uh, and so, uh, or we could just more generally say the people of God, which would include both, of course, the Jews in that ancient context and then, of course, the church in the more contemporary context. <clears throat> but he begins, and he begins with an injunction to the bride as he as the choir is singing to this bride. Now, one of the things we need to understand is how these Jewish weddings, Hebrew weddings, would proceed, particularly a, a particularly one like a king's wedding or a very important wedding like this. Is uh, we have kind of a little bit of a picture of it in our typical wedding today, because in a typical wedding today, you come to the wedding ceremony and you sit down in the pews and you watch. And what's the first thing that really happens? in the wedding ceremony. The groom enters, okay? And he comes with his attendants, right? And he comes and he stands up front, okay? With his uh, best man, okay? A best man and, and uh, what do they call groomsmen, okay? And they tell what an expert I am here. And they all stand up front, okay? And then what happens? Excuse me? Well, okay, the family is seated first before the groomsmen come in. Okay, but, but once the ceremony actually starts, the groomsman and the groom comes in, and then what? 
And then the bridesmaids, they come in and they come in very majestically. Okay, the groomsmen, they just kind of walk, shuffle in. You know, they just get them in there, however, get them there, you know. And then you have the bridesmaids come and boy, there's, you know, there's, they're, they're decked out and they're, you know, they come and they, you know, they got to walk just, you know, and this. And then what happens? Okay, but before the bride, the flower girls, you know, so you got these cute little kids and they're, Throwing petals all over if you can get them to do it. You know, usually they're staring at the crowd. But, you know, throwing the flowers all over. And then what? The bride. What happens before the bride comes in? The wedding march begins. Okay? And what happens as soon as the wedding march begins? Pardon? Everybody stands up and does what? Looks at the bride. Okay? And the bride comes in. Okay? So, so there's this spectacular focus on, on the bride. It's all very cool. I have no objections to all of that. Okay? And some of that really is kind of representative of what went on in a Hebrew wedding, only they were really a lot more spectacular about it. But let's just talk about the case we have here, where we have the, the wedding of the king. Okay? Well, in this case, if you've got a kingdom and you're going to get the king married, where's the most spectacular place you could have the wedding? In the palace. Okay? You're not going to go off to the local Baptist church, right? You're going to have it. In the palace, that's where you do, uh, you know, that's where you do a really hot, big wedding. Okay, you do it in the palace. So, typically, what you would have is you would have the king, and he's just waiting in the palace. And of course, everything's ready, and he's all ready to go, and he's on his throne, and all that sort of thing. But the wedding takes place in the palace. But the bride's procession starts at home, or starts, you know, in another location in the city. And her procession goes from her home all the way through the streets of the city. Meanwhile, the choir is singing or the singers are singing and they're singing the praises of the bride. So get this picture as we're reading Psalm 45 that the bride is now coming through the streets of the city. Now, the difference between our weddings and their weddings is in our, in our weddings, the, the bridesmaids lead the bride. But in their weddings, the bride goes first and her attendants follow her. And you'll see that in this psalm, okay? So the bride goes first and then her attendants are coming right behind her. So she's right at the point, the focal point of all the attention and all this admiration and praise is being sung of the bride as she moves towards the palace. Okay, And so that's the picture that's being expressed here. As the psalmist is trying to give us some sense of what it's going to be like when the church is united with her king. Okay? And so she comes, and the attention now has first been on the king, and now the attention is on the bride, and and the and the psalmist has some words of instruction for the bride. Right? He starts out with some words of instruction for the bride. And he says, Listen, O daughter, pay attention and incline your ear. Whoa. Have you ever done that with your kids? <laughs> you ever had to do that with your kids? Listen up. Pay attention. Give me your ear, you know. In other words, hey, this is important. And I don't want you to miss this. Okay. 
So whatever it is that the psalmist is about to say to the bride as he's imagining the people of God coming to their king, he's saying, okay, folks, pay attention. Listen up. Incline your ear. You ever incline your ear? That's a beautiful expression. Sometimes it talks about the Lord. And when he's listening to our prayers, inclining our ear to us. This is what it means. You know, you do it when you really want to make sure you hear something. You kind of lean into it. and You incline your ear. And he says, he says to us, the church, he says, incline your ear. Forget your father's, forget your people and your father's house. Whoa. That's pretty harsh words. <laughs> I thought we were in a wedding. <laughs> the first thing he says to the bride is, and, and some commentators suggest, and I think it's probably true, that in the, in the mind of the psalmist, he's probably thinking in terms of a foreign bride here. He's thinking of a bride who's come from another country. Or from another kingdom, and she's now she's leaving that kingdom, and she's coming to this kingdom. And if this union is going to work, she's going to have to forget her people, her country, and her father's house. Now, this is a theme that goes all the way through Scripture, is it? We we really encounter it directly first in Genesis chapter 12 when God says to Abraham, "What?" Leave your country. Leave your father's house. And then we see it again so beautifully in the book of Ruth. Remember the story of Ruth? And, and how uh, uh, she is... Uh, 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 you have Naomi, and Naomi, has, has, uh, Naomi and her husband have left Israel because of the famine, and they've gone to live in Moab. And they went over to Moab and then they had two sons and they raised those sons and those sons got married. And then her husband, Naomi's husband died. And then both of her sons died. And so she's left there bereft of her husband and her two sons. And all she has lost are these two daughters-in-law. Uh, Ruth and what's the other one's name? I forget. I forget. Uh, pardon? Orpha. Orpha, yeah. Okay, so it's Orpha and Ruth. Okay. And... And then finally she decides, well, I'm going back to Israel. Things are better in Israel. I'm going back to Israel. So she starts to go back to Israel and her daughters-in-law come with her and they come just so far. And then Orpha goes, well, if I go back to Israel, then I'm leaving my family behind. I'm leaving everything I know behind. And so even though she loves Naomi a great deal, she's drawn more back. And so with weeping, she says goodbye to Naomi and she returns back to Moab. And then Naomi says to Ruth, well, Ruth, you go too. There's no reason for you to follow me. I've got nothing. I'm a widow. I have nothing. I'm poor. I'm destitute. There's no reason to go with me. And what does Ruth say to her? She says, I will go where you go and I will lodge where you lodge and your people will be my people and your God will be my God. This is the principle we're talking about here. Forget your people and your father's house. And this is what Ruth did. And because Ruth made that choice and went with Naomi back to Israel, she becomes a part of the Messianic line. She would never have had that privilege of marrying marrying Boaz and having Jesse, the the father of David, etc. She would never have had that if she'd gone back to Moab. 
So we really have a choice to make as a church, don't we? And our choice is whether or not we're going to be infatuated and drawn and attracted back to the world and to all that the world has to offer or whether we're going to give ourselves completely to our new king. And he says if we do that, he'll desire our beauty. And so, as a church, we have this kind of goes back to some of the things that Ryan was talking about today. Uh, and the things he was talking about earlier is, is the church is constantly pressured by the world and the way the world thinks and the way the world and the things the world loves and the things the world values. And oftentimes as a church, we've been seduced by those things. And when we've been seduced by those things, it makes us less attractive to Christ. And so his admonition, uh, the, the, the admonition of the psalmist here to the bride is, listen up. Pay attention. Incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Now there's a trade-off here. It's not just you forget. She's going to get something as replaced in, in place of these fathers that she's left behind. She's going to get something in place of that, but we won't get to that until we get to the end of the psalm. Okay? And we're going to find out what she gets in, in, in place of the fathers. Okay? But, but if this bride, who's now walking towards the palace uh, in this grand procession, with all, if this union is going to work, she's going to have to forget what's behind we saw that with Abraham. We saw it with Ruth. We see it with Jesus when He says, unless you hate your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. This thing runs all the way through Scripture. That, that coming to Christ, being united to Christ, means we've got to make some choices. There's some things we have to leave behind. And then He goes on and He says... Uh, uh, then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. Now, this is striking to me. She's, she's coming into the palace. She's coming up to this man who is going to be her husband. She's going to be married to him. They're, they're going to be husband and wife. Okay? But before that can happen, something else has to happen. Because she has to recognize that this man that she's about to marry is not just her husband. He is the king. Okay? So in this sense, this marriage is different than any other marriage. Okay? And I'll elaborate more on this next week. We don't have time to do this today. But he's not talking here about about patriarchalism in marriage. He's not talking about men's domination over women. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not ta- we're not talking about a normal wedding here. We're talking about the union of the bride to of the queen to the king. Okay, and this is this is always a unique marriage, isn't it? When you have a king and a and, and a queen, because the queen is not only the king's wife, she is also his subject because he is king of the realm, and she is part of the realm. And so, as the church comes to Christ, 
Now remember, the bride represents the church. And again, I'll elaborate more on this next week. But nowhere in Scripture is the, is the, is the lover-bride analogy, nowhere in Scripture is it used in reference to individuals. It's always in reference to the corporate. And what I mean by that is when it talks about God as the husband and then as his bride, the bride is never an individual person. The bride is always either Israel or the church. It's always a corporate unit. And I think we can run into some problems when we start thinking about I'm personally married to God. Scripture never uses that analogy. Scripture never uses that analogy. We'll elaborate on that next week. Okay. So it is the church. It's not an individual here. It's the church coming to Christ. And as the church comes to Christ, she must first recognize... The first thing she does as she enters the palace is she bows down to Him because He is her Lord. Okay? So before this wedding ceremony can get off the ground and get started is she has to recognize before she's his bride, she is his subject. And I think we've lost that in the church, haven't we, oftentimes? Is, is uh, we get so focused on God loves us and all that sort of thing that sometimes we lose sight of his lordship. And as the church comes to Christ, as the bride comes to the king to be married, before this whole thing can really take shape, the first thing she has to do is she has to get down on her knees and she has to say, You are my King. You are my Lord. Well, we're out of time today. Uh, but we'll pick this up and we'll finish this next week. Okay?